bring everyone together for a great time with the Nintendo Switch system. Get the whole family in on the fun with exciting games that everyone can enjoy, like Super Mario Bros. Wonder, Animal Crossing, New Horizons, and more. Nintendo Switch has three different play modes all in one system. Play in TV mode, tabletop mode, or handheld mode when you're on the go. Visit nintendo.com slash us slash switch to learn more. Games rated E for everyone. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card, issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval terms apply. I'm Gary O'Reilly. And I'm Chuck Nice. And this is Playing Playing With with Science. Science. Today's show focuses on the obvious. Whether you just play or compete in sports, you are going to get injured. And to some of you and some of us, it's nothing more than an occupational hazard. Yes, and revealing the cutting-edge procedures in the play of the operating room is leading orthopedic surgeon Dr. Joshua Dines, who works with the Mets and the Rangers as well as others. And But to heal the body, you have to heal the mind. And sports psychologist Dr. Jim Taylor will show us how, in rehab and in recovery, you can do exactly that. But first, let's get to the man who does all of the heavy lifting, Dr. Yes. Joshua Dines. Before we say hello, doctor, let me just put everything out. The orthopedic surgeon who specializes in sports medicine and the particular shoulder injury yes, has been featured in New York Magazine's Best Doctors issue and Castle Connolly's Top Doctors in America. We've got the right guy, Chuck. Yes, we did. did, Right. (laughs) Associate team physician for the New York Mets, assistant team orthopedist for the New York Rangers, and he's gone by Coastal and a consultant for the the LA LA Dodgers. Dodgers. Dr. Joshua Dines, welcome to Playing With Science, sir. Thank you. Thanks for having me, guys. I yeah. appreciate you're, it. You're welcome. Completely um, unrelated um, medical question. While all these sports teams, do you have a favorite sports team? I, uh, I Clearly, the team, you know, the Mets and the Rangers are up there, and then I've got nothing to do with them, but the Giants are, are probably my favorite team. Okay, okay. Just wondering, just wondering. Yep. And if Chuck starts booing at you during this yes. particular interview, you'll, you'll hear he's in an Eagles fan expressing well, himself. That's I, all. I'm Either from- of them are looking great. Let's, yeah, exactly. Oh, we nice can play. Bo- we can both uh, taste the salt of each other's tears this season. <laughs> <laughs> well, not looking good. Not looking good at all. All righty. Okay. So, um, what are the most common injuries in sports, say, from 30 years ago until the present day that you would see time after time after time? I think a lot of it depends on on the sport we're talking about, but. The most common sports injuries, you know, that I see, you know, shoulder and knee are, are the two most common right. when you break it down by body part. And when you get a little more granular, uh, the shoulder, a lot of shoulder dislocations. We yeah. see that in football all the time. Right. Hockey. So shoulder instability would be, you know, very high on the list. And with regards to the knee, ACL tears, clearly, you know, as an Eagles fan, you can relate to Carson Wentz. Absolutely. Um, you know, meniscus tears, ACL tears are very common in the knee. And now those are, are the surgical issues the, you know, athletes, whether it's weekend warriors or professional athletes, they have a lot more sort of minor things that, that come and go, um, you know, Achilles tendonitis type things, little tweaks, sprains that are, are more common. But with regards to what I see as a surgeon, it's really the more, you know, when the injuries get more severe and that right. tends to be the shoulder instability and the ACL tears. Wow. So, you know, when you look at these, um, the injuries that you just mentioned, which have been common forever, you know, uh, and I think it's I guess it's the way uh, it's the way those joints are designed there. It makes it very difficult not to injure them when you look at the way and the level that we play sports today. Uh, With that in mind, they used to be career ending injuries. Yeah. 
Whereas now, like you said, Carson Wentz, here's a guy, tears his ACL, comes back six months later, starting lineup. He's not 100%, it doesn't look to me, but that's because I'm a fan. <laughs> but yeah. but there were, years ago, that would have been the end of an injury. What of an end of a career? What has happened in the industry? What advances have happened to make it so that we, you can stitch these guys back together and get them back out on the field the way it's happening now? It's a great question. I think you know the first part you mentioned is that, look, these injuries are going to happen. We're playing contact sports, playing more sports. So you're not obviously we want to try to prevent them. And we've gotten better about that in terms of making sure people are ready for play in terms of being more sophisticated about measuring muscle strength and, and balance. But these injuries are going to happen. And when they do happen, an ACL tear, for instance, used to be almost a week long procedure in the sense of you'd be in the hospital for a week. So the surgery would take a few hours. It'd be done through a really big incision. Right. They yep. put you in a cast and you'd literally be laid up in the hospital for five weeks. I'm sorry, five days. Now, it's a 45-minute procedure. We The people go home later that day. They're starting to bend the knee that night and the next day. So, wow. by, you know, so the recovery is much quicker. Wow. They develop a lot less scar tissue. And that really is predicated on, you know, our anatomy mm-hmm. knowledge is better now, but also our surgical techniques have improved. So most things that used to be done through big incisions are now done arthroscopically through small poke holes in the skin, using a camera to help us. And that's really been the kind of the game changer. So the advent of arthroscopic surgery has really taken these career-ending injuries or injuries that would take sometimes multiple years to get back and made them almost you know sort of commonplace that you're going to get back with you know in the same you know the next season. See, I can relate to what you've just described because I had that. Did you have ACL or no? I had back surgery too. Yeah, well, that spinal surgery is another thing. Spinal surgery because the the technology, as you've just outlined, stopped the well. Look, let's open it up and stick a head and have a look round. Because that, yeah. without being disrespectful to some fine surgeons, that was your only way. Before MRIs came along, before you got the CAT scans, right. you had an X-ray. An X-ray doesn't really give you yeah, defined imaging you the soft, soft tissue of soft stuff. tissue. So Absolutely. the only way was get eyes on it, have a look. Now I had uh, an MCL reefing, a rebuilding. Okay, but mm-hmm. both my cruciate knee ligaments were basically at an, just gone. Yeah, but because I was isolated in a in a plaster cast for yes. three weeks a month, they would then bring themselves to a good position. And we could go right. from there. Eventually. Oh, wait a minute. Now, this is fascinating because that doesn't happen anymore. So, Doc, can you explain to the listener what, what happened to Gary and then kind of, I mean, we're off track here, but I don't care because I'm, I'm, I don't know anything about this. What you just said, I know nothing about. And I'm totally fascinated now yeah. that you went through that process. And so can you explain what, 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 what happened to Gary and then what would be done today? Yeah, so. I, I, and like you, Chuck, I don't know much about it either because it was sort of before my time because we just don't do that. You know, that's kind of a relic. But, we, yeah. you know, we used to think that, okay, put it in a cast, immobilize it, let the body kind of scar it back in and heal it back in. It'll do well. And the truth is, depending on what you're looking to get back to, if you're going to host a podcast, you're probably fine. If you're getting back on the field for the Eagles, it's a little more difficult because during that healing process, uh-huh. you're also building up scar tissue. and. Right. These guys don't have a lot of margin for error when you're at the top of the game. You know, you've got to get them back to exactly where they were. Right. And that's where, you know, we've from doing basic science studies, MRIs, we've got a better understanding of how ligaments heal. And we also learned that, you know, immobilizing them completely is not a good thing. They need to see some load. They need to see some stress so that the body is kind of right. constantly remodeling it in the way that it's going to work. So we've gotten much more aggressive about mobilizing these injuries a lot more quickly which has hopefully avoided a lot of the you know, sort of complications that we used to see. Interesting. So the thing is, the worst thing about having a plaster cast from your toe to your hip is... Oh, my God. No, no, no. <laughs> you're going to love the worst bit is the itch. Oh. And yeah. the, the only thing that's going to be long enough and usable is a knitting needle. <laughs> oh, that's just, oh, my God. That's terrible. <laughs> that's it. And if you want the definition of mental cruelty, it's the itch just beyond the length of the, of the, of the and needs. you're like, right. <laughs> and you can't do anything about it. So now we, I mean, we learned. I learned this through spinal surgery. You used to be isolated, right. flat, and then all of a sudden, within the first 24 hours, the right. mobility right. kicked in. Yeah, it's interesting. They've taken that thinking mm-hmm. and brought it into other areas of joints, yeah. etc., which which have to, by nature, articulate and move. Yes. Right. So you don't want to lose that. It's a no. balance between letting things heal, but also not letting them get too stiff because right. then you're not helping the athlete either. Absolutely. So now let me ask you this, because um, there seems to be a in the world of professional sports, there seems to be um, some variation 
when, for the recovery with respect to the same injury. Mm. For instance, let's take the ACL or let's take a meniscus, all right? So you see one player, like, back a lot sooner than another player, all right? Yep. Is there a standard protocol for the recovery, number one, and how much of that coming back to true form and being able to get back on the field is up to the player themselves? I, you know, that's that's a great question. You hit the nail on the head. I think it's there's it's multifactorial. First of all, and I, I deal with this all the time because, you know, when when you read it in the paper that person had an ACL tear or a meniscus tear, you're not always comparing apples and apples. We'd like things to be cut and dry that every ACL tear is the same. Yes. But that might be the main injury. But there's also lots of little things that kind of go along with the ACL that some people may have some cartilage injury, some meniscus injury that really affects the outcome. But it gets kind of brushed over in the in the press when it was an ACL tear. That's the main issue. So that's what's discussed. But those have real implications with regards to the recovery. If you have to repair the meniscus versus cutting it out, yeah. that changes being on crutches for about six weeks. Oh, so wow. you're not always. So I think what gets lost in the public a lot oh. is really the, you know, the subtleties of what a certain is involved in a given surgical procedure. And a lot of times that's not divulged by the team or, or the doctors. It's really kind of patient doctor sort of privilege. It, uh, then, doctor, what you've described is that I had a, a meniscus tear. And yeah. as, as you know, and I'm, I'm tell you what you know, obviously not, not to be rude, <laughs> it can be a tear within the integrity of the meniscus itself or it can breach to the outer wall. And then, then the surgical procedure, depending on that. I had something where it was an integral tear, so it didn't breach to the outside wall. So they sutured. Yeah. Then that was fine. We thought this is good. And one day I was just walking. Pop. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. And oh, you, and that, yeah. Yeah, your recovery for the suturing is great because you want to try to preserve the meniscus. But that's a six-week recovery, whereas if it was just kind of, you know, fraying of the outside, you clean it up and you're walking that night. So, you know, all meniscuses aren't the same. All ACLs aren't the same. But Chuck, to your point, it also involves a player. Look, everybody's a little different. There's you're going to have the sports psychologist on. You know, there's there's a mental aspect of getting back and trusting it. Mm -hmm. So there are so many different variables, um, starting with the surgery, but also the athletes. There now at the highest level, these teams all have great physical therapists and trainers. So there's not much variability there. But you know, all of these play important roles in the recovery process. So now there's a big, all right, we're talking about these players. I hate to look at them like uh, commodities. Sorry to objectify you. By the way, uh, we are. Yeah, I was going to say, I, was I, was gonna say I, don't, I don't want to objectify you, Gary, but you know, you're, you're, you're a very fetching man and you're worth a lot of money to me. And I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, as long as I'm worth some money to somebody, <laughs> but no. So Doc, here's the deal. Uh, you know, I'm um, I'm I'm a I'm a team coach. I'm a team GM or owner. I want to see my guy get back out there on the field because you know they're worth a lot to me, and I also want to win. I'm a player, and I also want to get back on the field because you know that's where I find my value. But what you see in return on the flip side of that is re-injury is a huge deal. You don't want to see somebody re-injure. So Correct. where is the balance and how do you and what's the best way to avoid re-injury? And so for all of our weekend warriors are out there that may be listening, they probably have the same problem. I've seen guys do this, but they they, they injure themselves playing on the court in the on, on the weekend and they try to get back out there like a month later and boom, yep. they're sitting down or lying down or back in the ambulance. So well, how do you handle that? I, I think it starts with the same for both professional athletes and weekend warriors. And that really centers on patient education and, you know, setting the appropriate expectations in terms of what's the expected timeline till they are back at full strength, but also really being involved in the recovery because not as we just alluded to, not everybody progresses at the same pace. So it's constantly checking in, make sure they're progressing as you would expect, make sure they're meeting milestones as you would expect. And if they are, great. If they're not, then okay, then you're gonna have to temper your timeline and maybe do some things differently in physical therapy or you know, focus on different areas of their recovery. But first and foremost, it centers on patient education and with the professional, it centers on you know educating the owners and the and the GMs as well so that they have a realistic expectation as to when the players should be back. Because you also don't want to set the player up for failure where you underestimate the time to the GM, then the player's not back, and now they look like the you know, it, it makes the player look bad in their eyes. So you know, if anything, it's probably better to overestimate and have them be pleasantly surprised mm -hmm. than, than the reverse. How easy slash unbelievably difficult is it to yeah. have that GM conversation? Because the coach is, and I'll tell you this, Chuck, the coach goes cold on the player. Right. Because I can't have the player. Right. right. So therefore, he's, a, you're dead to me. There you go. 
That is basically You're the, dead to me, son. That is the sentence. Screw you, dad. I'll do what I want. I'll be somebody one day. You'll see. I'm sorry. I was having a flashback. Go ahead. No, no, that's fine. That That is <laughs> almost word for word the conversation <laughs> in the locker room, right? I've seen it six times. <laughs> yeah. I've seen that six times. Yeah. Oh, I, I've seen it in person. <laughs> I've, I've been on the other end. So Man, that's cold blooded. It, 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 it is cold. And then so you've got to hug. deal with that. Yeah. yeah, we'll team hug afterwards. Yeah. Um, but you have to deal with this level of expectation. And I can imagine the pressure on you is amazing. So how have techniques, have they changed because of the sort of GM pressure? Now I want to do something. That comes into the operating Now I want to do something really fun. I want to role play with the doctor. I want to be, <laughs> I want to be the GM. And I want you to tell me that Gary is lost to me for the entire season. It is game one. He is my star striker, baby. Even though you didn't play striker. I, I know. know. But still, you're my yeah. star striker. Thank you. And, story. Right. I, yeah, I got to build a story here, man. We're built, you know. Okay. So Gary's lost to me for the season. You got to have a conversation with me. How do you broach that conversation? I think, you know, it starts with having a good relationship with them, you know, that they're trusting you, that you're thoughtful. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, it's being honest, you know, if you sugarcoat it or try to kind of talk around it, set their expectations, you know, that he's going to be back, then nobody wins. And then they don't trust you in the future. So you have to be, you know, it's, it's, it's a tough conversation. You have to how do you start? It. It. I didn't call this. So how do you start? It? Okay. I'm going to be the GM. Okay. All right. Yeah. All right, doc, here's the deal uh, with respect to Gary. I'm trying to figure out a timetable for his return. Yeah. Chuck, um, I mean, I gotta be honest, you know, we've examined him. We've looked at the MRI. I know it's, it's frustrating for Gary, but this with this injury, he's not, you know, you're not going to have him the rest of the season. This is a nine month recovery at uh, the quickest and maybe even a year. All right. So now I, I got to tell you, Doc, that doesn't really work for me. You know, I mean, we're, we're looking at a season here. We have a chance to do something very significant, uh, you know, and, and you're talking about nine months. That brings me into next season. What, what is, what's he going to look like to me next season? I mean, the problem is, look, if we rush him back, you've you got him signed to a long term deal. Then he's running the risk of re-injury, and then you lose him for three years. We've got to be smart about this. It's early in the season. We'll find somebody, you know, hopefully somebody, he's going to be irreplaceable, but we'll find somebody who can hopefully step up. You've got a great farm system. But, you know, it, it'd be foolish to look you know, to him this year. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic that he'll be back for next year. Doc, you left me no choice. I've got to go put on my cleats again and <laughs> get back out there. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's, a, was... that's a late entry for the Oscar nominations. But... <laughs> All right, so yeah. that's how it goes. No, huh? I mean, it is, Doctor. I mean, it's it's yeah. it is basically that scenario gets played out over and over again, and Damn. the coach has to be cold <laughs> because yeah. if, he, if he keeps looking over his shoulder at the guy in the stands or the guy in the treatment room, he's not focused on what's ahead of him, and what's ahead of well, him is another game, a whole season, or whatever the length of time is. What you have just told me is that I could never coach anything. Because no, no, no. I Don't do that to yourself. I couldn't do it. I could not look at somebody and say, hey, man, look, that's it. You're done. Um, have a great have a great summer. <laughs> and pretty much screw you because I got these other guys I got to deal with. Where do you see surgical procedures developing, progressing? Um, I, mean, it's, <laughs> I mean, every athlete wants the miracle cure, but that's... That's by the by. That's a wish that probably will never, ever happen. Where are we likely to be headed? And what is the thinking for surgical procedure at the moment in terms of the future? I think, you know, our techniques, as we discussed with ACLs earlier, they've really evolved. Um, and our, you know, we've done a lot more stuff arthroscopically, small incisions. I think really the, the three things that are changing and really for the better, improving our outcomes and getting athletes back more reliably are A, just more minimally invasive surgical techniques mm -hmm. with a better understanding of, of an individual patient's anatomy. So I think kind of tailoring the surgeries more to an individual, whether it's like patient-specific instrumentation, things of that nature, using our preoperative studies that, that you mentioned before, CT scans, MRIs, to kind of reproduce that given patient's anatomy as opposed to just sort of a one-size-fits-all approach. Then you augment that with biologics. So I'm sure you guys have heard, you know, everybody talks about stem cells right. and PRP and these right. biologic injections. It's still the Wild West. There's not great science behind them yet, but it's getting better. And I think if you ask me kind of five years from now, we're going to have a much more targeted approach with these biologics mm. so that to treat each person's injury a little more effectively. And then the final straw is just improving our rehab 
being more scientific about, you know, assessing when an athlete can return to play, when they're ready to return to play. You put those three things together, and I think we're going to really improve our outcomes and get athletes back more reliably. Wow, that's amazing, especially the biologics, because you're talking about, have we gotten to a point where we're able to uh, target specific areas with stem cells for rebuilding? So you would go in, you would do a small surgery, and then introduce that catalyst to rebuild that area. Is that what's happening? We're starting to, but right now it's almost like a carpet bomb where you're just injecting all these stem cells. Uh, I think as we, you know, as we get down the road and we have a better understanding of the healing process, we'll be able to say we're going to put this one growth factor in at day two and this one at day seven and this one at day 10 because it's such a complex process that we're just starting to understand. And I think we'll continue to get more, you know, sort of scientific about it. I can imagine with, and we've, we focused a lot on the ligament damage that can and does happen within all sports, whether it be elite or, as you say, weekend sure. warriors. There is a laxity in sort of breakdown. So the, the thing itself doesn't snap in two, but it becomes less str- strong. Right. And therefore, yeah. are you able to rebuild? Are you talking about being able to rebuild things like that, or repair tears quicker and stronger? Well, I think that, you know, that's the goal. Nobody would do that yet. You know, we don't trust it enough yet. Sure. Right. But that's the goal. If you can kind of, you know, take a rubber band that's lost its elasticity and, and, and you know, just it. repair it as opposed to using a new ligament or a new tendon to regrow it and augment it with biologics. If you can change the recovery time, even if they still need surgery, if you can cut that recovery time from an ACL from a year to six months, that becomes a huge a benefit to the player, but B, you mentioned earlier. Look, it's it's a money issue right. for these teams as well. Yeah, and by the way, that sounds that kind of sounds a little more like the fountain of youth, though. I, I think you'd end up, uh, you, you know, you would end up extending the life of a player and what they're able to do for much longer periods of time if you were able to achieve something like that. So. Sure. I'll go back to the early 90s. Uh, one of my teammates um, got bust up with badly with an ACL, soccer player. They came from the UK, came here to California, and I believe, and this goes back to the sort of roots of the biologicals that we've, we've just discussed yeah. with the doctor, they may well have put a dead man's or a dead person's Achilles tendon mm. into... Yes. Right. yes. You see? Yes. So th- if you follow on from that... Right. This is where the science and the thinking leads to, and, and then what goes beyond that will be incredible to now, see. Now we're did, their an, did, their, did their ankle die once they put the dead man's Yeah, That would be bad form. But now yeah. they're even going one step further using these grafts that they're growing in the lab, you know, kind right. of creating a biologic, yes. so you're not taking it from a cadaver, but that's really kind of the, the, you know, the holy grail of making a fake ligament in a lab that you can plug in and it, it works from kind of time point zero. Wow, that is fascinating stuff. Man, that is really that is really extremely. Ex- that's just very exciting. See, sports you know? injury. You think I get hurt? I see someone like Dr. Dines. I get into rehab. I go back and do my thing. What most people don't realize is, just like the elite organization and sports, it's always moving forward. Right. The thinking within medical science right. is always moving forward, and the demands of elite sports is in some way. And Dr. Agree or disagree on this? pushing to a certain extent a little bit of the thinking and the techniques mm-hmm. that we are talking about right now. So do these techniques that do these techniques that happen what you guys were just talking about all these kind of do they make their way to the regular public? I mean, is it kind of like race car driving where you know, you see an advancement and then it happens in a regular stock car? Yeah, honestly, that's it's a great example and it probably goes both ways where, you know, there are certain things where you're going to be a little more hesitant to try in the highest level athlete you know, you're going to want to stick to stuff that's tried and true because I don't want to, you know, ruin somebody's career that's making, you know, $20 million a year. Right. So some of the stuff we actually start at, you know, much lower at the other end of the spectrum with people that are lower demand and you say, oh, wow, this is working. Maybe we can start pushing the envelope in athletes and there's some benefit. And then there are other things that clearly used to be reserved for the highest level athletes. Tommy John surgery is a perfect example. Mm-hmm. And now you see, you know, high school and college kids getting it. So I think they kind of meet in the middle coming from both directions. Interesting. I got one last thing I just got to t- ask you about because I'm confused. All right. So I had a terrible sprain when I was maybe 18. Mm-hmm. Right. To the point where I mean, like completely immobile like that's how bad the sprain was yep. and the doctor was just like god it would have been better if you broke this than, <laughs> than this sprain that, that I've heard before yeah, he was like yeah. it would have been yeah. so much yes. better if yeah. you broke this than this sprain right here by the way yeah. it's, it still bothers me to this day I, I didn't get proper rehab because um, they didn't know about it back then yep. uh, but I see these guys on the field and they wear braces and they have these support 
uh, equipment, the equipment that they put on. And I was told that that actually weakens you in some way, that you start to rely on the support of the brace or the equipment. Mm. And so they told me, no, you don't want to do that. But yet I see guys like Aaron Rodgers and even even Carson Wentz. And these guys come back and they are winning. So why, what, why, what is that about and why does that happen? I think it's, you know, your, your point is correct, where a lot of times we want people, you know, you'll immobilize it or put a brace on to give some extra support initially after an injury, but you don't want to become a crutch where the muscles around it start to atrophy and they're, they're not doing well. But you're, so, so what the doctor told you is correct. The problem is that doesn't apply to an Aaron Rodgers or Carson Wentz where these guys are strong, but they've got, you know, people trying to rip their arms off. You've got a dominant suit trying to rip their arm off. So a little extra support is not a bad thing. And they're not decompensating by wearing those braces for, you know, three hours on a Sunday. I got you. I got you. By the way, Doc, uh, there's a lot of people trying to rip my arms off, too, but for different reasons. <laughs> oh, I wish I was one of them, but I might, <laughs> I might just be now. <laughs> right. Uh, doctor, thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dr. Joshua Dines. What a great um, conversation. Yeah, an enlightening conversation. Uh, and thank you so much indeed for your time. Wish you well, sir. Thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. Yeah, please you come back. Welcome. Please come back and join us again. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, business tripper, or long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. And that's good, because there are a lot of me's. Choice Hotels has over 7,400 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels. Get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. Cambria Hotels feature locally inspired hotel bars with specialty cocktails and downtown locations in the center of it all. Hey, that's me. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces to get the most of your business travel and on-site restaurants. That's me, too. And at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles, great pools for the entire family, and spacious rooms. Hey, that's me, too. I guess I'm just going to have to stay at all of them. Choice Hotels has a stay for any of you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travel comes true. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Our next guest... Dr. Jim Taylor, who has written a number of books on the psychological approach to sports injury, the rehabilitation and recovery. So, doctor, welcome to the show, firstly. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Um, what made you feel that there was something that was being neglected in this field of injury, rehabilitation and recovery? Sure. Well, first of all, my, my initial work and the sort of the meat of my work, if you will, focuses on, on helping athletes perform better, achieve their goals through better mental preparation. Inevitably, in working with athletes from junior leagues up to professionals and Olympians, a lot of them would get injured. And I began to see even when they, let's say, an ACL reconstruction or a Tommy John surgery or a broken femur or some such. The, these days, the surgical and rehabilitative technology is such that athletes can come back from what used to be career ending surgery um, and make a full recovery. And, and yet they would often come back in terms of their full physical parameters, strength, agility, mobility, things like that, but they couldn't return to the same level of play. And also during the course of their physical recovery, they, they would struggle in so many ways in terms of their confidence, their motivation, um, their emotions. And so it became clear that when athletes get physically injured, their minds get injured as well. 
And I use the metaphor of the mind is being made up of is made up of muscles, just like physical muscles. And muscles can be either weak, strong, or injured. And so when somebody has a very serious injury that's going to keep them off the field to play for for months or maybe a year more, there's definitely mental stuff going on there. Is each athlete prone to the same things or does it vary from individual to individual? And I'm guessing from a weekend warrior to an elite athlete, there'll be an awful lot more in terms of which areas are vulnerable mentally as to opposed to the other? Well, the answer is yes. Um, there are general areas in which athletes, regardless of the level um, they're at, um, struggle. And sort of the main ones are motivation, confidence, anxiety slash fear, focus, and emotions. At the same time, because, because high-level athletes are more invested in their sport, they, uh, they are going to struggle more because it's very often their livelihood, their identities. But that's not necessarily the case because I've often found weekend warriors, triathletes, runners, basketball players, you know, it's just their it's just their avocation, but they are very serious about it. Plus their personality components. Some people are just more resilient, less emotional, tougher, um, who, who respond in different ways. So let me ask you this when it comes to um, an athlete being recovered and psychology versus versus actual brain function. Can the brain send signals to someone that they should be overcompensating because you kind of create certain movements, you activate different muscle groups because you are suffering from an injury. So let's say you go back through and you you actually, you're rehabbed and now you're at full strength. Can your brain still send signals that say, hey man, watch out. You know, when you step this way, you're gonna tear this, or you know, this muscle's gonna rip. Can that happen? It's a great point. Yeah, and that is one of the great challenges with athletes who are returning to sport after a serious injury. And what's remarkable about it, let's think of a, a, a professional football running back. And how many times has he made a cut in his life? Millions upon millions of times without any consequences. But that one time he makes that cut. Now, if this were simple, simple numbers and logic and rationality, that one cut where the injury occurs should have zero impact on them. But that impact, that one event had huge implications on them in terms of their identity, their physicality, their future, their earnings, all these things. And so and also the body's wired through evolution to protect itself. So the last time the brain heard the body making that cut, um, something bad happened. So when, it, when the, that movement occurs again, the mind is basically telling the body, don't go there, don't do it. Like you said, Chuck, the same thing will happen. Wow. Yeah. And it, it, I mean, I, my own personal experience, you will favor once you, I've had my, my MCL rebuilt. So I then favor the other leg. And over time, that other leg has come to <laughs> bear the brunt of all that added weight. But the thing there is, how do you get the athlete's brain to, if you like, outthink your own brain and then providing the confidence is there and everything is 100% or as good as 100% in terms of the, the recovery, the surgery, et cetera, to then take that out of what Chuck Stars there, out of the, the, the athlete's thinking and allow them to pursue a balanced performance level once again? Sure. Well, it doesn't start when they first walk onto the field of play after they're quote unquote healed in rehab. It begins ideally the very first day. So I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, there's been some fascinating research related to uh, post-traumatic stress um, among, um, surge, among the military, where if they sustain a serious injury, if in the 24 hours after the injury, they can reimagine the experience without the injury it somehow seems to keep the emotional content the trauma out of being woven into the fabric of the neurons in the brain wow so it's it's, it's, still, it's it's still preliminary but it's actually pretty darn powerful so by doing that in a, in a way the mind is healing itself in that very short period before it gets sunk in wow then it's a matter of training the mind and, and rehabbing the mind. So I call it the psychological rehabilitation of sports injury. So just as the athletes go in and do PT and work with athletic trainers 
to rehab the muscle, uh, rehab the injured area, the ligaments, the bone, whatever. They also need to rehab the mind. And a couple of key components of that are, first of all, the notion that rehab is athletic performance. Because athletes, when they're seriously injured, they think, oh, I'm not an athlete anymore, or rehab is so different than, than, it, than uh, sports performance. But doing a set of, of leg extensions for range of motion or increasing power with a light squat, that is an athletic performance. And that has tremendous psychological value because athletes can connect with, oh, yeah, this is what enabled me to be successful as an athlete. This is what's going to enable me to, to be successful as a rehabber. And so really just really just just changing their perspective. I'm not an injured athlete. I'm still an athlete. Go ahead, Chuck. So with respect to that, because now now you're, you're talking about there is a psychology to the rehab itself. You know, I would assume the two things. One, it's hard to motivate an athlete during rehab because the immediate gratification of being an athlete is getting on the field, improving what you've done. So when I'm in the weight room and I'm trying to put on four pounds of muscle, which is very, very difficult, it's grueling and it hurts. I'm okay because I'm like, I'm seeing a little growth. I'm seeing some performance improvement on the field. How do you actually get them to, what are the metrics that you can give them? Because they're, they may not feel like I'm getting better. As a matter of fact, it's the opposite. I can't do what I used to do. I feel weak. How do you, what, so what do you do for them at that? Right. Well, a lot of it starts with that perspective first of, of rehab as athletic performance. Also, it's this belief that because they're still athletes, they're still performing. And what I found is that very often with athletes, motivation can vary. You know, they can go, it can go from zero to a, from a pity party up to I'm getting out there and I'm going to be Jerry Rice getting out on the field after three with three weeks post-op, which didn't turn out so well back in the day. Um, <laughs> but the, the key thing Someone's a is fan. athletes actually, some athletes, they actually become better athletes after they recover because they learn how hard it is. They learn to suffer. They learn to struggle. Whereas many gifted athletes, everything came so easily to them. But also the great thing about injury is that in rehab is that there are very clear metrics. Range of motion, before I could, I could um, bend my knee 45 degrees, now I can do it 60 degrees. Before I could lift um, a, a five-pound sandbag, now I can lift a 15-pound sandbag. So the, so the, 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 arc, the trajectory of, of improvement is still there. It's, but the difference is from with an athlete who's healthy, they're from gone trying to go from here to here. For an athlete who's injured, you can't even see me on the screen. They're going from here to here. Gotcha. It's interesting. For the elite athletes, the professional guys that are at the very top, you take them out of the game, they're furious. Yeah. Because they, they're born to play. That's what, since they were teenagers, maybe earlier, will be in. So you take them out, they will do what it takes. And in fact, you have to rein them back in. And the doctor will confirm this. And I've done it myself thinking, you know what? Just rip the shirt open. There's a big S on the chest. Right. This is me. Watch this. Right. Three weeks later, I'm back to that moment before I thought I was Superman. Right. And, yeah. th and it's, that's the problem. Yeah. Well, Gary, the single biggest piece of advice I give an injured athlete when they come to me is stick with the program. Stick with the program. Don't under adhere to it. But as you suggest, a lot of it, seriously motivated athletes, they figure if, if this much is good, well, twice as much is going to be better. And, and a lot of times, especially with super motivated athletes, it's not motivating them. It's demotivating them. It's putting a bit in their mouth and reining them in. Because my experience, both professionally and also I had my shoulder reconstructed after crashing skiing a number of years ago, was if I stuck, if, if you stick with the program, you do get better. And doing too much or too little will actually set you back. Can I, can I ask you about pain then and the actual real? Uh, everyone experiences pain differently, uh, including athletes. There are some people that just, I don't know what it is, man. They just have a higher tolerance. I'm not one of them. Uh, but how do you deal with that real? Because it's, it's an impediment. Like, it's like, wow, this hurts. I don't want to do it. And your brain, by the way, is actually designed to tell you, don't do this. Yeah. This hurts. The reason why you're not supposed to do it is because it hurts. And so what, what, what are some of the ways that you help somebody get over that very real obstacle of pain? Sure. Well, first of all, I, I educate them about pain. And there's actually been some wonderful research on how pain is not just a physical experience. It's actually filtered through the mind. Yes. How we perceive the pain impacts the degree of pain we feel. So as an example, research has shown that when people associate, uh, associate negative thoughts, like I hate this, this is awful, this hurts so bad, and negative emotions, like 
anger, frustration, despair, disappointment, they feel more pain. Wow. Now turn that around though. And this is where it be, where pain is a tool when pain can be looked at as information. So if it hurts, what can I, what do I need to learn from that? Do I ease up or is this just exertion pain? And is this actually good pain? And also conversely from the research I just described to you, when athletes associate pain with positive things, like I can do this, this is a good sign, I'm working hard, I'm getting better, and positive emotions such as pride, inspiration, excitement, joy is probably a little too much to expect, um, then, uh, then, then they actually feel less pain. So it's really educating injured athletes about what pain is, how it affects them, and giving them some tools they can use that actually ease the pain. Now, will thinking positively work as well as a shot of Novocaine? Of course not. But it can ease the pain and also just getting them to understand that this pain is actually not bad. It's part of the deal. Makes them makes it more helpful. It's interesting. I'll go back to the point you made about how with armed forces personnel, if they're injured, and this will relate again to athletes, within 24 hours, you help them revisit the incident, but with a, without the negative outcome. Right. Right. So having bear that in mind, you've made me think, I can't then heal myself and just, you know, if there's a fracture, if there's tears in ligaments and things like that, but there might be minor injuries where I can change my state of mind as you've just described, bring that positivity and maybe not cure myself, heal myself, but speed up the process of recovery in a really, really good way. Yeah, that's a little bit controversial. There has been some evidence that the mind has the capability to heal parts of the body, not directly, of course, not by some sort of psychic magic, yeah. right. but simply by increasing blood flow, for example. By relaxing, by having the mind relax the body, which allows the body to heal better, which activates the immune system. So, so there, there is some evidence of that. But bottom line is, if there's an injury of any sort, whether a minor pull or a major tear, uh, the, the body needs time to heal. And, and it can't be rushed. Every, there, yes, there are variations in, in healing. But for the most part, there is a general range. Let's say an orthopedic surgeon will give an athlete. of It's going to basically take three to six months. And somewhere in that range, they're going to start feeling better. And depending upon the physiology of the athlete, where they are in that range will will dictate how long it actually takes. So you made me – well, Gary's question or Gary's comment about being a pro athlete and then the Superman on the chest, it just made me think, so – is there any work underway or is there any counseling being given to coaches? Because I would assume that that same mentality. Oh, don't talk about coaches. And could, rehab. That same mentality could actually lead to injury itself. The idea of I'm going to push it and push it and push it as opposed to, hey, man, this is my limit. Let me back off so that I don't tear a muscle or a ligament or whatever. Before you answer that, doctor, I'll give you a true example involving me. Okay. I'm in a rehabilitation unit for spinal sur recovery from spinal surgery. And this isn't a two-week thing. This is taking several months. My soccer club sent the head coach to come find me, see what I was doing, how I was getting on, what work, why was it taking so long? Because it was outside of the, the club's control. Right. In other words, why are you still here? Right. And this pressure, this immense pressure, that's why athletes push. The professional guys push because they know they're going to get pushed by the coach. And if they don't push themselves, you know what? They're going to get someone else in to do my job. Yeah, it's that cold. Right. Well, coaches play a big role because they feel tremendous pressure to get their, their best players out in the field. And they will often uh, do th put pressure on that's not in the best interest of the athlete. And that's where a really strong sports medicine team needs to push back. And the athlete needs to push back and, and say, I'm going to go out there when I'm ready. But that's hard because the player also wants to get out there because they might lose their spot or they, they just they're competitive. This is what they do. They want to realize their identity as athletes. And so, again, it goes back to really trusting the sports medicine team and making sure all the physical parameters are in place and then mentally if they're in a good place as well. So do the, does the sports medicine team and people like yourself, doctors like yourself, um, 
do you work with preventative measures? Because I would assume, what is, well, forget assuming. What is the best way to prevent injury? Is it, is don't it, do sport. Don't, don't play. <laughs> but is it, is, it, is it proper technique? Is it, is, it, is it rest? Is it training? Is it re, uh, increasing range of motion? Is it, uh, you know, what is it? Is, it, is yeah. it all those things? Whatever. Yes, it, it's all those things. You want to train athletes physically, technically, and tactically, and mentally in ways that prepare them for the demands that is placed on the body. And so incredibly well conditioned in terms of strength, power, mobility, flexibility, um, stamina, has certainly good technique. Bad technique can lead to injuries in regardless of the sport, um, as well as good nutrition is a big part of it. Rest and recovery is essential because often injuries occur when, when, when an athlete's tired and their body, their muscles, because of fatigue, simply not able to do the movement that maybe the day before when they're rested, they couldn't do. Plus, making sure that they're mentally prepared. If an athlete is not fully committed, if they don't truly have confidence in their ability to make that move, if they're not at the right level of physical activation, either having enough energy or just having not too much, and then being super focused on what they need to do to, to execute, all those things play into the likelihood or the lack of likelihood that a serious injury will occur. Wow. That's amazing. While you're talking, Doctor, and as with all of our guests generally, do they make us think. Yes. And I'm sitting here thinking, you sound very much at the forefront of this kind of thought process for sports injury. Have you, and you probably have, identified the next level or is there a next level for this kind of approach towards sports injury? Absolutely. And it's where the reality is, is that very few sports medicine clinics have sports psychologists or mental coaches involved. And, and in my work, I become a very integral part of the sports medicine team and where I develop a mental training program, a mental rehab program, just like the, the, the orthopedists and the PTs and the athletic trainers develop a physical rehab program. I develop a mental t- a rehab program that complements what the athletes do physically. And so as the athletes improve physically, they're also improved mentally. So when they when they go out on the field the first time, they are not only physically ready in terms of all the physical parameters, but they're fully committed mentally. They're in a place mentally where um, where, where Chuck, as you said earlier, where they're not going to be their minds, not going to be going, don't do it. Don't do it. You're going to get hurt because that's a recipe for reentry. And so if you want, I can briefly describe what this mental rehab program involves. Please do. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> My knee hurts. Talk, talk quick. <laughs> very, very good. So a, a couple of key components to, to um, the rehab program. First is a ton of mental imagery. The most powerful mental tool is mental imagery. Having athletes see and feel themselves performing. What this does, it keeps their mind in the game. Because it's, at one level, the body doesn't know the difference between real and imagined execution. So if athletes during the course of a six month or a seven or eight month rehab, if for three or four times a week, they are seen and feeling themselves performing in their sport, they're, 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 re, they're continuing to wire their brain for confidence, for intensity, for focus, three key components of athletic performance. They're also at an identity level, they feel like they're still performing. So their identity is getting nourished. And so they're not going to need to go out and do th- like and push themselves excessively that could lead to re-injury. So imagery is huge. Video as well. Video is external imagery. The more the mind, when the mind either internally imagines or watches video, it actually triggers the motor cortex. So I've seen athletes actually come back from a sport, from an injury, better athletes because A, they're better technically through their imagery and video and because they know the game or the sport better because they're able to study the sport in in ways that they maybe didn't have time for or they didn't think that were that important. So I, I might have them be on the sidelines next to the coaches so they can learn plays from a different perspective in much greater depth. Also, this idea that, that rehab is athletic performance. So before an athlete goes and does a drill on the sports field when they're healthy, they hopefully do things to get mentally and physically prepared. Same thing holds true when they begin a rehab exercise. You, they need to be committed, confident, intense, and focused. And what that does, it, it, they, they're not only strength, they're not only rehabbing the mental injury, they're also training their mind to become better athletes. So when they get back out in the field, they're more capable of performing at a higher level. Because when I work with athletes who are injured, I don't want them to become and just be where they were. I want them to re-enter the field 
better athletes than they were before they got injured. Wow, that is fantastic. That's that, all good stuff, man. Yeah. That's just re- you know we're out of time. We are sadly. But wow, and sadly is right. I mean, you're you're really fascinating to speak with. If you take this to the next level, would you be kind enough to engage with us so as uh, we can explore that with you? Yeah, and, uh, I loved it. It's been great fun, you guys. Oh, yeah. G- Dr. Jim Taylor, thank you so much. Sports psychologist, um, working with athletes in a number of ways, but for this show in particular, with sports injury rehabilitation. Absolutely. Doctor, thank you so much indeed. Yeah, go out and buy one of the doctor's 15 books. <laughs> yes. No, 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 no. Go out and buy all, all of, the of the doctor's, doctor's 15 books. <laughs> there you go, doctor. I love you guys. Ah, you're Thanks welcome. Again, Doc. Thank Thanks you. Much. A lot of fun. So, Chuck, that's it. We've spoken to a surgeon. We've yes. spoken to a sports psychologist. I've, and we've I've kind of got the timeline of a sports injury and how it was done and how it is done and how it may be done in the future. And I don't know about you, but I was fascinated. I feel healed mind and body. Mm-hmm. And, that, and it's amazing. You know what? You trust someone like Dr. Joshua Dines as a surgeon to do his thing. But then, having spoken to Dr. Jim, you realize more of your own healing could be in your own hands. In your own own mind. In your own mind. Yeah, man. And with that thought, Chuck, we're going to say goodbye. Yes. Um, This has been Playing With Science. I've been Gary O'Reilly. And I've been Chuck Nice. And we look forward to your company very, very soon. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.